Now turn with me, if you would please, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Dr. Wilborn preached on Psalm 1 just a few weeks ago, and I'm not terribly creative, and in some cases, frankly, creativity stresses me out, so I thought I would just continue uh, right along with that and follow up on Psalm 1 with, surprisingly enough, Psalm 2 for a standalone sermon here in January. But, you know, in God's providence, Psalm 2, just like Psalm 1, is precisely the kind of message that we need to hear these days at the front end of the year of our Lord 2023. Nations are raging. War continues to beset Ukraine, for example. Our own society seems to despise the message of Christ more with each passing day. Much like what we thought about this morning, many Christians are discouraged, beleaguered. They need their downcast faces lifted up to see sure and certain promises, and Psalm 2 does exactly that for us. Now, when you come to the book of Psalms, remember Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 tell basically what all 150 Psalms are all about. They, they front end the major themes that will be sung about and meditated upon for 150 Psalms. Remember Psalm 1 tells us that the Psalms are about loving God's law, about delighting in God's ways, the blessed life, and that God blesses the way of the righteous, his people. And then Psalm 2, as we come to it tonight, it's about God's Messiah. The nations may rage and wickedness may abound, and that's a theme that we find all over the Psalter. But ultimately, it's all in vain, the wickedness, because God's Messiah and his glorious royal reign are coming. And that's the basic gist of all 150 Psalms. Now, you turn on the news, and a thing like hope may seem naive, because things seem bleak, and they seem grim, and they seem awful. But that's precisely why we need a text like Psalm 2. We need both the realistic truth and the hopeful truth, which Psalm 2 provides for us. So let's turn to God's word, shall we? We'll read Psalm 2, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help as we study it together. Hear now God's holy word, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this, your holy word, because it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And truly, by it, your servants are warned. 
So grant us, we ask, the ministry and the illumination of your Holy Spirit tonight as we study your word. Give us grace to believe it and grace to obey it, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we look at Psalm 2, many scholars believe that this psalm was originally used in a coronation liturgy for the Davidic kings. And as you read through that text, you can see why, I suspect. A new king over Israel would come and he would be crowned and he would ascend the throne and they would sing this psalm as part of the coronation ceremony. And as we let your eyeballs glance down through the psalm, as we were reading it together just a few moments ago, you may have noticed that Psalm 2 has about, well, not about, it has four distinct sections, and each section features really a different speaker, if you picked up on that. So in verses 1 through 3, the first voice, or the first speaker, if you like, that we hear, we hear the raging nations in those words. We hear the voices of arrogant, rebellious kings calling out. But then in the second section, verses 4, 5, and 6, there's another voice speaking. And this one, it's God the Father speaking in that case. He laughs in derision at their pathetic rebellion. But then there's a third speaker in verses 7, 8, and 9. And this time, the speaker is God's own son, the one who's been appointed God's king to reign in Zion. And then finally, verses 10 through 12, one last speaker, one last voice, and it's the voice of the psalmist, the author of this text, almost like a, like a narrator offering a conclusion to the dramatic film that has just played out. And you see there that the narrator is summoning these rebellious nations that he's just surveyed, and he's summoning these leaders to submit themselves to the lordship of God's Son, whose voice they just heard calling out to submit to God's Son while there's still time. So, along those lines, along the the, the contours of those four voices speaking in this text, four points to guide our sermon this evening. First, the foolish, raging nations. Then secondly, the sovereign, laughing God. Then thirdly, the anointed, reigning Son. And then fourthly, a call, a call to bend the knee. So we'll think through our text tonight along those four lines. So let's look first to verses 1 through 3. The foolish, raging nations. Verse 1. Why, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? It's a rhetorical question, of course. What's the point, he's asking? Is there anything more pointless or absurd or futile than attempting to rebel against Almighty God? Why are they wasting their energies? And do notice the posture of the psalmist as he asks that question. You see, this is, this is not a man that is, that is fretting, who's, who's wringing his hands and who's sweating bullets because the nations are raging. It, it's not so much that he's worried or unsettled as much as he is bemused. He, he's not dismissive. He's, a, he's aware that the nations are raging and it has the potential to cause a great deal of turmoil and grief and misery for God's people, yes, But at the same time, he has the perspective of heaven's throne. He knows that the nation's raging is absolutely, patently absurd. I remember once when when the boys were younger, a couple of years ago, they were at a a playground, and uh, there was this log there at the playground. And I'm sitting on the park bench, enjoying watching them romp around on the, on the, the castle playground and playing and doing all sorts of different things. And there's this log there in the mulch, and they're trying to move it. And they're pushing, and they're pushing, and they're pushing, and they're grunting and grunting, and this thing is not budging. 
Now, it was a large enough log that they, they couldn't see this, but behind it is this fairly sizable rock behind the log, preventing it from moving. Now, I could see it, and I could roll it away uh, if, if they wanted me to, but they surely could not. And I said to them, boys, do you want some help moving this thing? No, 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 Dad, we got it. We're going to do this ourselves. Okay, but I, I think I see a problem here. No, no, Dad, we're going to do it. And they just keep vainly pushing and pushing and grunting and grunting. And you're thinking, okay, <laughs> fine, be that way if you want, but I know how this is going to end up, and it's not going to go the way you think it is. Why? Why do the nations rage, the psalmist asks. I know how this is going to turn out. I can see your straining. I can see your struggling. I can see your striving, and your fuming, and your fomenting. Why? It's pointless. Can you think of anything more futile? You see, the psalmist sees the raging, sin-sick world. And he's not for a moment downplaying the reality of it, the reality of sin and wickedness and evil and the effects that wickedness can have on God's people. And yet at the same time, there is a very real hopefulness that the psalmist has. He's realistic on the one hand, and yet at the same time, fully hopeful. So what's this world up to? Well, he says there in verse 1 that they are raging and they're plotting. They are conspiring together. Their kings, verse 2, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. See, right here, right here at the front end of the whole Psalter, the psalmist, and indeed God, the Holy Spirit, he lays bare the real inclination of the hearts of mankind. You see, that, the scripture right there, that is the base instinct of all our human hearts in our sin, in our fallenness, in our depravity. He, he doesn't sugarcoat it, do you see there? He doesn't put a nice spin on it as to what the, what the thoughts and the vain imaginations and the desires are that are percolating in the hearts of men. This is really, I think, Roman, Romans 1 reality put into Old Testament language. You remember Romans 1, verse 29 and following? As Paul surveys the mass of fallen humanity, they, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Haters of God. And what we have here in Psalm 2 is just an iteration of that descriptor of Romans 1 put into Old Testament categories and Old Testament poetry. Now, incidentally, the Hebrew word here in verse 2 that's used for the Lord's anointed... That word there is pronounced in Hebrew as Mashiacho, Mashiach. It's where we get the word Messiah. You might be able to hear it in there, Mashiach, Messiah in English. Verse 2 quite literally says they are conspiring and plotting against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's what Messiah means. The Hebrew verb behind the title Messiah means to anoint or to, to smear, like applying oil on one's forehead against the Lord's anointed one, his Messiah. If I, can, if I can paraphrase it, the psalmist looks out on the nations, or sometimes the word, in, depending on what English translation you're using, the word might be translated Gentiles. It's the same word, nations and Gentiles. It means foreign nations, those who are not part of God's covenant people, Israel. The psalmist looks out on the Gentiles, looks out on the nations. He surveys the world saying, and he sees this world saying, we hate God. 
We don't want him to rule over us. We don't want his Messiah ruling over us. So let's cast off his reign. Let's mutiny. Let's rebel against him. One commentator pointed out that later on in the New Testament, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are there. Uh, the first, and we, we alluded to this uh, earlier to this morning, the first real persecution has struck the early church. And later, Peter and John are released, and the church gathers for what is essentially a prayer meeting. And, le- and there, in verse 26 of Acts chapter 4, they pray the first three verses of Psalm 2. They pray Psalm 2. And then they also, they go on to pray in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, they say this, Now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see these these early Christians, Peter and John and the others, they've been threatened. You stop preaching Christ. Shut your mouth. Stop talking of this Jesus of Nazareth. Silence. Knock it off. But Psalm 2 had strengthened their resolve. Psalm 2, as they prayed through it, had given them spines of steel. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, they continued on. And God's, then Holy Scripture tells us they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, things in our world, not terribly unlike things in their world, the world of the early church, are dark and grim in many ways. We don't need to hide from that fact. We don't need to pretend otherwise. We don't need to try and view our world through rose-colored, rose-tinted lenses. But at the same time, Psalm 2 helps us to face the reality of our world and the reality of our historical moment realistically. Psalm 2 enables us, like it did for the early church, to face reality head-on because Psalm 2 gives us truth. And the truth sets us free to face reality. And it gives us grace for the living of these days. So that's the first thing we need to see here from Psalm 2. The foolish, the foolish, foolhardy, raging nations. But then secondly, look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Here we see the sovereign laughing God. The sovereign laughing God. So first section, the first speaker, the first voice, if you will. Raging world. Arrogantly raging. Defiantly raging. How does God respond? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is it that fills the psalmist with such unflappable confidence? How was it that the the saints in the early church in Acts were able to defiantly stare down their persecutors. And where might you, brother or sister, where might you find the confidence and the calm for these days? Well, it comes from the knowledge of the reality that is portrayed regarding God Almighty in Psalm 2. The high king of heaven enthroned, he sees the pathetic temper tantrums of wicked men, and it is all as a joke to him. A joke! Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary here on Psalm 2, says this, God is unimpressed 
God is unimpressed with their raging and fuming. And, and here, here's where the worldview of Scripture runs headlong into the popular conception of God in our culture. For, for as secular as our, our, as our culture is becoming and as, as anti-God and anti-gospel as our culture is becoming, there's still this residual sort of Christian-esque notion that our culture has retained about God. But when you ask the average non-Christian about God, if there, if there is such a thing in their mind, the description that they're going to give you is not the one that we find in Holy Scripture. Now, Dr. Davis puts it well. Here's where Scripture starts to step on toes. If we have imbibed a Western sentimental view of God as the great soupy softy in the sky, something more akin to a cosmic Santa Claus than the God of Scripture, then we will not understand the picture of verse 4. In fact, we will likely be offended by it. Close quote. You see verse 4? Look at it there. If we... If, if our conception is that Almighty God is this deity who is unfailingly and unceasingly nice all the time, someone who's more akin to Mr. Rogers, I suppose, and that's the view of God that many have, and if that's our view, we will have a very hard time finding comfort in verses 4 and 5. I mean, look at this. A, a God who speaks in wrath against wickedness. A God who terrifies his enemies in fury. That's not your positive, encouraging, drive-time moment on Caleb, is it? But if rather, if rather we have come to trust in and love the God of the Scriptures, the God who executes justice, the God who sees oppression, and he sees the suffering of the orphan, and he sees the misery of the widow, and he sees the suffering of the downtrodden, a God who acts appropriately in the face of heinous evil, a God who is not unmoved when wickedness is dealt upon his covenant beloved people, then we will find enormous comfort in verse 4. So sovereign, so able, so powerful is the God of the scriptures that even the mere suggestion, the mere suggestion of rebellion against him is utterly laughable. It is as a joke to him. You want to rebel against me? Have at it. Do your best. But he does more than that, doesn't he? Verse 6. This is God the Father speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You can scheme all you want, raging nations. I've already appointed a king in Zion. Now that, that term, Zion, you may know, it's a special name for Jerusalem, the holy city. And as scripture goes on, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, the name Zion, it, it evokes this wonderful end-time imagery. Zion, once the, the hill of the temple, the temple mount there in Jerusalem, and now it's this perfected, glorious city where a, a holy God dwelt with his holy people, a place where sin had finally been removed and eradicated, and a place where God's people were finally and at last safe. Safe at last, safe and secure in God and safe in him forever. And notice the language says how he puts it, God says, even in, it's in the past tense there in verse 6, I have set, I have set, it's as good as done. The world wants to rebel against me? Good luck, God says. I've already appointed a king and Isaiah chapter 9, later on in the Old Testament, tells us of the increase of this king's government and of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
That's the second thing we need to see here. First, the foolish, raging nations as they futilely, stupidly even, rage and conspire against an almighty God and his Messiah. God the Father responds, the sovereign laughing God. He laughs in the face of this utter silliness. But then thirdly, we see the anointed reigning son. The anointed reigning son. Now look at verses 7 through 9 with me. We've just heard about this this king that God the Father has set on his holy hill, but then verses 7 through 9 tells us more regarding this appointed king. The king of verse 6, now he's speaking here in verse 7. So if, if God the Father was speaking in the previous three verses and he described a little bit this king this, that he's going to set on Zion's hill, now that king is speaking here in verse 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here we're told that the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, back in verse 2, and the king that he just spoke about there in verse 6, it really is God's own son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And of course, if you know your New Testaments, later on in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it quotes this verse and it applies it directly to the Lord Jesus in order to make the point Jesus is the divine son. Today I have begotten you. Now, does that mean today you are born or today you are created? No, no, that's not what that means. No, no early Arian, early church heresies happening here. No, no. One commentator puts it like this. The begetting, the begetting that's spoken of here by the psalmist, today I have begotten you, is an eternal begetting. And the today, today I have begotten you, is the eternal present, the everlasting today of the divine life. So that this son, this son has always been the son of the father. There never was a time when he was not, close quote. That, that gospel prologue that we love so much from John's gospel, John 1 verse 18, it uses the same kind of language. John, the apostle, says Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father. The son here in Psalm 2, whom God has appointed to be king, is none other than the second person of the Trinity. Spoken of here in type and shadow, more fully revealed and more clearly expounded in places like John 1. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New revealed. And we have another iteration of that. But here we're given just a hint, aren't we? A hint of that further Trinitarian doctrine and development that we'll see more fully expounded and fully declared in the New Testament. Now, as I said, uh, we, we mentioned earlier that Psalm 2 was likely a song employed at a coronation ceremony for a new king of Israel. But, but of course, given the language here, surely Psalm 2 was never ultimately understood to be about any mere earthly king. Of which earthly king would God have said, you are my son? Psalm 2 is ultimately about the God-man, the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if that, and even if that, that, that language were invoked, sometimes in the ancient Near East, kings were thought of as the sons of God. That was a title that would be employed about them. But of which earthly Israelite king would God have ever said, I have begotten you? No, ultimately this is about the second person of the Trinity, the eternally divine Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
So we're told something of his identity, but not also, but, or, but not just that. Notice also, not just his identity, but look again at verse 8 with me. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Not just the son's identity, but here we see where, where the son reigns. What, what property belongs to him? The raging nations in verse 1. Those same nations will be the possession of the Lord's anointed. Later on in your Old Testament, Isaiah 40, verse 28. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Or Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Try as you may, O world, the psalmist says. Try as you may. Self-important despots, trendsetters, culture shapers, legislators and governments, architects of the moral revolution, enemies of the church, social engineers, tech tycoons, try as you might. Try as you might. The world is mine. You know, Psalm 2 is, is often associated with Christmas time, and that's no coincidence. King Herod, I think, is a perfect example of this utter foolishness that's on display in Psalm 2. You remember the old carol, a Coventry carol, that line in there? Herod the king in his raging charged he hath this day. His men of might in his own sight, all children young to slay. Raging. Herod, thinking that he could cast off the bonds of the Lord's anointed, he thought, much like we saw this morning, the raging stupidity of Pharaoh in Exodus 1. Later on, Herod thought in the slaying of the young boys of the land, he could somehow snuff out God's Messiah. He could somehow derail God's plans. <laughs> Fat chance. God's plan is unassailable, and the true king has come. Now, this is good news. This is good news for the beleaguered and the weary child of God. And if tonight you are worn out, if tonight you are discouraged, if tonight you are beleaguered, if you are weary, if you are tired, whether it's your own sin and your own circumstances or just the sin-sick world in which we live, if you are at your end, know this, that the true king has come. And his domain is not just Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and it's not just the four walls of this church building. His domain is the ends of the earth. There are no shadowlands, if you like. There is no territory beyond his rule. From the polar ice caps of the Arctic down to the tip of Cape Horn, from the Pacific Rim and everywhere in between, over all things, the Lord and King Jesus Christ says, Mine. It is mine. And I will have dominion over all. Nothing is beyond his power and nothing will escape his dominion. Jesus reigns. That's not just a doctrinal statement. That's for, the, that's for the glad swelling of your hearts to adoration and for your encouragement and for the bolstering of your souls, people of God. Jesus reigns. And after his glorious resurrection, when Christ ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, what was that if not a triumphant coronation? King Jesus is enthroned. Do not forget it. Take heart, brothers and sisters, because the Lord Jesus reigns. So we're told not only his identity, we're told not only where he reigns, the, the scope of his authority, but do also notice verse 9. There's also something here about his power. 
his identity, his scope, the scope of his reign, of his authority, but also the power that he wields, the, the, the authoritative power that he possesses. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. One commentator said this, there was a tradition among the ancient pharaohs of Egypt at their coronations to have the names of their enemies inscribed on a potter's vessel, a ceramic vase. And then Pharaoh would literally smash those pots to pieces to make a point about his almighty power that he was about to assume. Close quote. That's the picture. Now understand, clay pots, clay vessels, clay vases, these, these were essentially the Tupperware containers of the ancient world, okay? It's, it's imagine, if you will, it's like these, these massive steel beams, almost like the, the steel structure that we have here the arches in our, in our worship hall upholding the ceiling, these massive steel beams, these structural beams being hoisted by a crane at a construction site, and suddenly the cable snaps and they plummet down through the air and they fall upon this hapless plastic Tupperware container on the ground. That thing's got no hope, no chance. The iron rod is a picture of the king's royal scepter. It's a symbol of his potency and his rule. The image is telling us that the the powers that be of this world are delusional. They're delusional. The powers that be, as mighty as they think themselves, they are the potter's vessel. They are the hapless Tupperware containers. And like a hapless clay pot swung upon by the cosmic rod of iron, there is absolutely no resisting. There is absolutely no escaping. There is absolutely no thwarting the just judgment of God's appointed king. We don't tend to think of the word judgment as good news, do we? When you, when you, when you hear the, the word judgment invoked, it sounds harsh, it sounds foreboding, it sounds something dreadful. But actually, isn't that what our world is so desperately crying out for? In, in a world where women and children are exploited, and innocent blood is shed for the amusement and the ego of callous oligarchs, we want wickedness to stop. We, we want suffering to cease. We, we want wrongs to be righted. We want evil to stop and be undone. Just judgment. That is massively good news because there is such a king. There is such a righteous and royal potentate who reigns in such a way. And this is good news because just judgment is coming and it will vanquish all evil. It will undo every wrong and right every wrong and it will, he will reign and rule rightly forever and eternally. Just judgment is coming and that is good news. Good news. So that's the third thing that we need to see. First, the foolish, raging nations, then the sovereign, laughing God, then the anointed, reigning son. But then finally, the fourth thing we see here, there's a call, a call to submission or a call to bend the knee. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here the psalmist is speaking. So you have the the voice of the raging nations, the voice of God the Father, the voice of God the Son. Now you've got the, the psalmist sort of musing and wrapping things up at the end. Uh, almost like an epilogue as, as a narrator or an author. Now, he began his narration by telling us about the nations raging and the, the kings and rulers foolish conspiring against the Lord's Messiah. Now he circles back to these kings and rulers. He revisits them and he addresses them directly. Do you see? He warns them. He pleads with them even. Verse 10, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can be sure, the psalmist is declaring, you can be sure that this Son of God, this Anointed One, whom the New Testament tells us is the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the great King. And all who reject him, all who oppose him, will perish in the way. All right, but, but, but I, I thought the New Testament said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Yes, absolutely, praise God. But the coming of Jesus Christ is a two-edged sword. In many ways, Psalm 2, it, it's, it's almost like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. A, a hope of rescue is held out in the context of condemnation. Good news held out even in the midst of great need. Right, everybody remembers John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. But as we read on in verses 17 and 18 and 19 of John 3, read a little further, remember what it says? For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Right? John 3 says the world already stood condemned. It's already in a condemned status. But Jesus came in order that those who believe on him might be saved. Psalm 2, the sun's wrath is kindled, rebel nations. Kiss the sun. There is deliverance to be found. This is one of the great themes of Scripture, and you'll probably hear me refer to this from time to time over and over, particularly as we're going through our Exodus series. This is one of the great themes of Scripture. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. You see, whenever God does his great acts of deliverance, it always results in deliverance for some and judgment for others. I mean, think of it. Just a few examples. Noah. Noah saved. World destroyed. Moses and Israel, saved, Egypt, crushed. On Calvary, Jesus crushed his people, atoned for. Jesus returns, the church is delivered, and the world is judged. Jesus' coming is a two-edged sword, and when he comes, Psalm 2 says, he comes with quickly burning wrath against the sin and the rebellion that's leveled against him. He comes in judgment against that wickedness. But the good news of Psalm 2 is that it doesn't have to be that way for us. You see, the psalmist, he implores us. as He's imploring these kings and he's imploring all who would read this psalm. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. That's an image of fealty and and submission as well as love and honor and trust. This this ancient Near Eastern practice of of bowing down on one knee and, and the king extends his hand or perhaps his scepter And the subject kisses the scepter or or kisses the ring in order to show loyalty. And then the subject is forever in the king's good graces, forever secure. That's what the psalmist is imploring to the nations. Kiss the son, bow before him in homage and fealty and submission, find refuge in him. You remember there at the beginning, we said that Psalms 1 and 2 were the, give us the great themes of all the 150 psalms. Psalm 1, remember, speaks about that there's really just two ways to live. The way of the wicked and the blessed life. The way of the righteous. Well, here in Psalm 2, we find the key to that blessed life, don't we? What is the way into the blessed life? Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. 
Okay, how do we get into that righteous life? I don't want to be on the path of the wicked. I, don't, I want to be in the way of the righteous. How do I get there? Psalm 2, kiss the son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The day is coming. Revelation 19 pictures that moment. And remember Revelation 19, it quotes Psalm 2. He will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee, every tongue, Paul says, but the day is coming when all will be made to bend the knee. The question is, will we bend the knee in loving fealty, kissing the son, finding refuge in him, embracing him by faith? Or will we be made to bend the knee when the triumphant king comes and we become his conquered subjects? It's been said many times before, it's not unique to me, but when you come to Psalm 2, you see here at the end that there is no refuge to be found from him. There's only refuge to be found in him. And the good news is that Jesus, when he came the first time, as John 3 told us, he came so that all who believe in him need not perish. Nobody needs to perish in the way. Nobody needs to be dashed to pieces like a clay pot under the iron scepter of judgment of Jesus Christ. The gate is swung open wide to the blessed life. Refuge in the sun for sinners has been provided. Christ came and he lived and he died. He himself died a cursed death under the judgment of God so that the way could be opened for guilty sinners into the blessed life. So come, come and take refuge in him. Kiss the son, turn from your sin and turn unto him in saving and trusting faith while there is still time. And in the meantime, weak and weary saints, take hope and take heart because your redemption draweth nigh and salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And the Lord's Messiah shall indeed truly come again and when he comes, he will come to end every sin and to wipe away every tear, and to right every wrong. And that indeed is good news. Praise the Lord for Psalm 2. Let's pray together. Lord, truly, thank you for Psalm 2, and thank you for the perspective that it gives us, how we need it. This text is filled with realism about this dark world, and yet it's also filled with hope, because we know who reigns over all. So Lord, might we... All your church, all your people, all your elect, kiss the Son and take refuge in him and enter into the blessed life. Seal your word to our hearts this night, for we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.